Well, good morning, everyone. Let me begin with a question and ask, why do we listen to the apostles and the other godly men within the scriptures? Why do we listen to them? It's interesting that while people uh, today pass over the scriptures as merely being a collection of human opinions, uh, biased by the culture and the history from uh, which they were first penned, uh, the servants of God in the first century uh, also had much opposition uh, regarding their preaching and their teaching. This morning, we're going to begin a shorter study on the book of Titus. Uh, we're going to take a brief diversion in our long-term study of the Gospel of Mark and, and focus for the coming uh, weeks on, on Titus. Over the following weeks, we're going to see uh, much uh, direction uh, given uh, to the church in the way that it is to be organized and the, the manner in which we as members are to conduct ourselves and, and the hope uh, that which our faith is grounded upon. But in the, the salutation, the, uh, the opening greeting, uh, Paul outlines the grounds for apostolic instruction. He gives us the reasons why we should read his words, why we should listen to his words, why we should heed and obey his words. So if you haven't done so already, please turn with me to Titus chapter 1, and we're going to read the opening few verses. Titus 1 verses 1 to 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Saviour, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. It's uh, certainly common in our reading of uh, the epistles in particular to read these opening greetings and uh, then straight into uh, the content of the letter. Uh, That's nice, Paul's just introduced himself, let's get on with the main thing. But uh, as we'll see, uh, there is an enormous amount of truth wisdom uh, and importance in these first few verses. And Paul in particular outlines the grounds for his apostolic instruction. And the first aspect that we see, the first reason that he gives for why we should be paying attention to his instruction as an apostle is point one, his authority, the apostle's authority. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ is how he opens this letter. Paul is the author of this letter to Titus. Now, how do we know this? Because he says so. It's without any ambiguity in these opening words. But since the 19th century, with the rise of liberalism and and critical scholarship, which rather than taking the Bible as the inspired word of God 
uh, treats the Bible as it would any other document from history. Uh, Well, these movements led to the suggestion that Paul did not write this letter, nor indeed did he write 1 and 2 Timothy, uh, these three letters encompassing what we call the pastoral epistles. It's suggested instead that uh, these letters are the product of the early church uh, that simply took Paul's name uh, and applied it to their work to give it an authority that it would not have otherwise wielded. Of course, if you allow for this, uh, then it opens the door for critiquing and disposing of what is written in the letter that follows. But there is no doubt uh, that Paul is the author of the pastoral epistles And we don't really need to spend any time defending this this morning. We, uh, as a church, believe that the Holy Spirit worked through godly men to ensure that God's uh, divine word was spoken. And we know that because it stems from God's character and his nature, there is no error. We don't need to be confused on this matter. But if you would like to look at more depth, uh, there are many good commentaries that have detailed discussions on that topic so Paul is the writer of this letter and if we construct a timeline a chronology for the Bible uh, we discern that it was written uh, shortly after his release from his first imprisonment in Rome Uh, at the end of the uh, the book of Acts uh, Paul we see is imprisoned in Rome Uh, We know from history that he's then released uh, and he carries on more ministry. And during this time is when he wrote 1 Timothy and the letter of Titus. Uh, Then he was imprisoned again a few years later. uh, And then as he awaited his execution in Rome, uh, he wrote 2 Timothy. And so all this uh, is in the early AD 60s. Although Titus is not mentioned in the book of Acts, he is mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 as being a fellow worker in the gospel. Uh, Because of his diligence, uh, Paul had sent him to the island of Crete uh, to help the newly established churches. And this was no easy task. Uh, For like Timothy, uh, who had been sent on a similar mission uh, to sort out the churches in Ephesus, Uh, Both these men faced great opposition uh, to the work of the gospel. There were those seeking to perpetuate the the Jewish traditions as being binding uh, on Christians. Uh, There was the general immorality uh, of the places in which they were ministering. And moreover, there was the contention uh, from many that Paul's authority uh, was not binding because his words were simply his own. There was no divine authority behind it. Well, here is a case of the more things change, the more they stay the same, isn't it? I mean, how often do we hear today, well, that's just Paul, isn't it? But why don't we listen to the Scripture's opinion about Paul's writings? Uh, The Apostle Peter, he writes in his second letter to Peter, chapter 3, from verse 15. He says, and count the patience of our Lord of salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, 
which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. And so Peter here, he equates Paul's writings with the other scriptures. He places them on the same level as the inspired word. He understands Paul's writings as the inspired word of God. And so should we. That is, unless we don't think Peter was inspired in his writings either. Well, in the opening verses of his letter to Titus, Paul lays out uh, when, uh, where his authority comes from. And he does this to assure Titus uh, that what he has been told to do in this letter is not simply Paul's human opinion. Uh, it's not something Paul's just dreamt up by himself. And he also does this to convict those who read this letter, both uh, those who read it then and for us as we read it today, uh, that these are not simply man's thoughts that we can discard as being irrelevant or culturally bound for 2,000 years ago. So Paul describes himself firstly as a servant of God. The word servant means slave. Uh, In chapter 2, verse 9, Paul speaks about bond servants being submissive to their masters in everything. And while modern application would see this as an employee-employer relationship, it was speaking about slaves. The ESV translation retains this word in in Paul's letter to the Colossians in chapter 3 and verse 11, where Paul writes uh, to the believers uh, in Christ, he says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. It's the same word translated here as slave, translated in Titus as servant. No doubt there is a hesitancy uh, to translate the word everywhere as slave due to the modern understanding of the term. However, it does encapsulate what it means to be a Christian. We as humans uh, think that we are completely autonomous beings, but that is simply not true. We are creations And so we can either serve uh, the creator, the one who made us, or we can serve some other aspect of creation. Paul makes this clear in Romans, in chapter 6. He says in verses 16 to 18, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death, or of obedience which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So we are either slaves of sin which leads to death, or through faith and by grace we become slaves of righteousness. We submit to the Lordship of Christ. But of course, our our bending of the knee to God is only made possible by His grace. 
and the Holy Spirit's work of regeneration that, that brings us from spiritual death to spiritual life and enables us to respond to the gospel. When Paul was saved, it was clearly by God's grace alone. And he was stopped dead in his tracks uh, by the risen Lord Jesus while he was on his way to persecute Christians. He had no intention whatsoever of turning to God in his own stead. That is until God changed the sinful desires of his heart. For Paul to speak of himself as a servant of God meant that he served because of the gracious work of God in his life. But it pointed as well to the purpose uh, for which God intended for him. Like many in the Old Testament who were referred to as servants of God, men like Abraham, Moses, Daniel, many of the prophets, it emphasised his divinely established role as the mouthpiece of God. The second designation in verse 1 draws this out even further. Paul speaks of himself as a servant of God and, that is furthermore, an apostle of Jesus Christ. The word apostle means one who is sent. But the purpose of the sending is to carry an authorised message. Now the word apostle, or the Greek word underneath our English, uh, can be used in a general sense to refer to anyone that's carrying uh, the message of the gospel. But it is used most particularly in scripture as an official title of authority. It's used for the twelve apostles, and it's used for Paul, who was the last of the apostles. The New Testament uh, specifies three requirements uh, for the office of apostle. Number one, you had to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. Number two, uh, you had to be personally appointed by Jesus Christ. And number three, you had to be able to validate this claim with miraculous works. For Paul, that is a check, check, check. But these requirements given in scripture for the position of apostle uh, present clear evidence uh, that after Paul, there have never been and there will never be any more apostles. And so it's best not to use the term for any form of church leadership because it just adds to confusion. Paul's servanthood and his apostleship affirms his authority for both Titus and for those who would read this letter. This opening verse then provides the foundation for what he will say throughout the whole letter. But in the immediate context, uh, Paul goes on to explain the divine task that he has been assigned. So point two, we see the apostle's assignment. There's three aspects to his divinely given assignment here. And the first concerns the faith of the elect. Paul was a servant and apostle for what reason? Verse 1b, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. His mission was to preach the gospel so that the ones whom God had graciously chosen before time would respond in repentance of sin and faith 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's focus was on evangelism, reaching the lost, calling sinners to respond to the good news of the gospel, teaching people that salvation from the wrath of God is only found through Christ and through faith in him alone. And Paul, he had been steadfast in this mission from the moment of his own salvation. He was a man who was never sidetracked by peripheral issues. He kept the main thing, the main thing. But his zeal for seeing lives saved, uh, lives reconciled to God, lives enjoying sweet communion with the Lord, this zeal never caused him to try and convince people to believe with any other means than the simple preaching of the gospel. Why? Because he recognized the absolute sovereignty of God in salvation. It was by grace alone that people were saved, and this by hearing the word of truth. He understood this in his own conversion. He understood this in the conversion of others. He was never tempted to divert away from preaching the gospel because he knew that it was the divinely assigned means of sharing this truth. In this short sentence then, we see the connection of human responsibility and divine sovereignty. Look what you miss if you skip over these opening words. It is a a human's responsibility to willingly receive Christ in faith. And yet it is only by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit that uh, one's willful desire for sin is changed and they are able to respond to the gospel prior to the Spirit's working in a person's heart. They are dead in their sins and their trespasses. And what can a dead person do? Nothing. This fact points to the realisation that God has chosen who will respond to him in faith. For if people can only respond by grace, and if not all people respond, then we understand that those who do respond are those whom God has sovereignly chosen, whom God has elected in love. And if it is not relying upon God's sovereign election, then we must uh, conclude that those who do respond were simply wiser than those who do not. Paul preached the gospel everywhere he went, trusting that those whom God had chosen would embrace it wholeheartedly. Luke testifies to God's sovereignty when he's writing about Paul's preaching in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 13, Paul preached in Pisidian Antioch and and Luke comments in verse 48. He says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. In Acts chapter 16, after Paul preached in Philippi, Luke comments again in verse 14. One who heard us, uh, Luke's referring to himself. He was there at this point. One, of, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart 
to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So Paul was concerned with the faith of God's elect. But he was also concerned with the fruit of God's elect. He was a servant and apostle for the sake of, verse 1c, for the sake of their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. The connection between truth and godliness shows that Paul was not only interested in evangelism, but also in edification. He was about making Christians, and he was about maturing those Christians. Paul makes this plain in in Colossians chapter 1, where he says in verse 28, Him is Christ, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And is this not following what, what Christ himself explained in the Great Commission, Matthew 28? Verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The phrase, knowledge of the truth, that Paul speaks of here in Titus, refers specifically to saving faith. A person must know the facts of the gospel to respond to the gospel. But it also points to the sanctification of Christians. See, the longer a person is a Christian, the longer they have to grow in their knowledge of the truth, the more opportunity there is to mature in that faith. And yet we recognize that this is not simply a head knowledge. There are countless professors of religion in universities and institutions and in churches all around the world who have an enormous knowledge of the truth, but only in the sense that they know what the Bible says, for they have no conviction that it is the truth. They have no affection for it and have no obedience to it. While human works do not and cannot in any way contribute to a person being justified before God, works are nonetheless integral as a fruit of a regenerated person's life. Sinners are saved that they might be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. But if there is no desire for the truth, if there is uh, no desire for obedience to the word, if there is no evidence of godliness, then there is no assurance of salvation. And a gospel message that does not lead one to submit to the lordship of Christ over a person's whole life is no gospel at all. It is an absolute tragic state of affairs uh, today that people are given assurance of their salvation while at the same time being advised that it's okay to live in a way that essentially thumbs its nose at the holiness of God. The root of justification always leads to the fruit of sanctification. Knowledge of the truth always leads to godliness. We'll never reach perfection this side of Christ's return. 
But a regenerated life always is working towards conformity to Christ. Well, the third aspect of Paul's assignment is his concern for the fearlessness of the elect. Verse 2 begins, in hope of eternal life. Grammatically, it's a third purpose statement. One commentator explains that Paul is a servant and apostle. Why? For instilling the hope of eternal life. That's what he's about. Paul's concern is not only for the faith of the elect, not only for the fruit of the elect, but for the fearlessness of the elect. It is by teaching believers about the confidence they can have regarding uh, the future is by doing this that they are encouraged for today. Hope, in biblical terms, is not wishful thinking, but it's an assured confidence that God will bring about what he has promised. And here, the hope is of eternal life. It is to be in the presence of the Lord for eternity. And what a hope that is. Uh, From enmity with God because of sin. From standing condemned under his wrath uh, with the prospect of that judgment being meted out at the Lord's return and experiencing that forever. From this dire predicament to the hope of being in his loving presence for all time. Worshipping the triune God. This is the hope of all Christians. And it transfers into our lives now. For we know in part what we will experience in full then. Paul's mission is to teach, train, build up and encourage people uh, in what awaits. That the elect might come to faith and that they would grow in that faith. It helps people to stand firm against persecution. It helps us as Christians to stand firm against the temptations that we face in our lives. It helps us to know that history is headed somewhere. And for those who respond to the gospel, what a blessing that future will be. The rest of verse 2 and then verse 3 is an explanation of why biblical hope is much more than simply desiring something will happen in the future. And we're going to address this under point three, the Apostle's assurance. Why is a major facet of Paul's mission to instill the hope of eternal life? Because the one who makes eternal life possible is 100% reliable and 100% able to keep his word. This confident assurance provides more grounds for listening to the apostolic instruction. Paul mentions two aspects that bolster the assurance of eternal life. And the first is the promise of the past. Paul's mission is to instill the hope of eternal life. Why? Because it is something, verse 2b, something which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Eternal life is a guarantee for all who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ because it is made by the holy, sovereign creator who does not have the ability to say something that he does not mean. 
He never lies. He never purposefully lies and he never accidentally lies. God's righteous character is expressed throughout Scripture. In the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers, we read this in Numbers 23 verse 19. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? In the New Testament, we see this same aspect brought out. In Hebrews 6 verse 18, we read that it is impossible for God to lie. And then Jesus says in John 17 verse 17, to the Father, your word is truth. Hence, why the scriptures, uh, which are inspired by God, breathed out by him, every single word, since it is from him, the scriptures are infallible. That is, they cannot contain error. And it is inerrant. It does not contain error. If God has promised He will deliver. And this draws out other aspects of his nature. It speaks of his omniscience. He knows all things from eternity past to eternity future. Nothing takes him by surprise. It speaks of his omnipresence. He is everywhere. God is spirit. There is no place that we can hide from him. And it speaks of his omnipotence. Now, that does not mean that he has the power to do anything. We've just seen it. He can't lie. To speak of God's omnipotence means he has the power to bring his will to pass. Nothing thwarts God's efforts. Nothing. God has promised the gift of eternal life to his elect people. And he made this promise in eternity past. Paul brings this point out in chapter 1 of his letter to the Ephesian believers. We read this in Ephesians 1 verses 3 to 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. And we must remember that the opening uh, chapter of Ephesians is essentially one big breath from Paul. He's up there singing and dancing as he speaks of the election and predestination that the holy God, the creator of the universe, has wrought for sinners. We think of predestination and election as something to be fearful of, something to protect God of. But when it's spoken of in the scriptures, it is spoken of with exuberance and in song and in uh, great thankfulness. Because without this, without God's sovereign work, we would never turn to him. So the promise of the past gives the assurance of eternal life to God's people. But there is a second aspect that gives assurance. And that is the proclamation of the presence the present, sorry. Verse 3, Paul continued, And at the proper time, God manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Saviour. 
Paul is not simply spinning a good tale in order to sucker people in for his own benefit. He had confidence in what he preached because he had been divinely commissioned to do so. He had met the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. He'd been convicted right there on the spot and commanded to preach the word, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you think that Paul would have endured all that he did if he were a peddler of false tales that he made up to gain some money? Of course he wouldn't. God the Saviour instilled within Paul the responsibility of proclaiming salvation that is found by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Can we have confidence of eternal life when we read the words of the Apostle Paul? Well, for all who trust in the gospel message, absolutely. Should we take heed of all of Paul's instructions concerning uh, not only faith, but also godliness. And as we get into the content of his letter, should we take heed of his instructions concerning the divine ordering of the church? Absolutely. If we don't think he is right when he speaks about uh, church and family structures, then why should we believe a single word he says when he speaks specifically about the gospel? The Bible is not a smorgasbord where you take your plate up to the servery and you choose which bits you like. No, we can have the assurance of eternal life because all the words of Scripture are true. They have been promised by the God who cannot lie, the God who can fulfill all of his promises. And they've been proclaimed by men chosen by God to speak out at the exact right time. So we've seen the grounds for apostolic instruction in Paul's authority, his assignment and his assurance. But we would be remiss not to recognise the genuine love he had for God's people. He does not wield his divinely given power for his own benefit, but it is done in self-sacrifice and care. And so our final point, point four... We see the apostles' affection. Verse 4 starts, To Titus, my true child in a common faith. Paul's affection is seen here in the way that he addresses Titus. Uh, They had known each other most probably for 15 years or so. Although, as we said, Titus is not mentioned in the book of Acts. Uh, He is mentioned in Galatians chapter 2 where Paul recalls going to Jerusalem uh, for the major council uh, that was recorded in Acts chapter 15. Uh, This council uh, was to deal with the matter of the Gentiles being admitted into the church. And Titus was a Gentile. And so it is of great significance that Paul refers to him as his true child in a common faith. It emphasises that Jew and Gentile have been united in one body because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. No longer are there any uh, national identity markers such as circumcision or dietary requirements or Sabbath observances. All those, anyone who repents of their sin and submits to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in faith are saved and brought into the family of God. 
This is important. For one of the obstacles that Titus faced was the circumcision party, uh, whom Paul addresses later in the opening chapter. But it also emphasises the personal relationship that Paul had with Titus. Titus and Timothy, they were not apostles, uh, but they were not simply pastors or elders either. They were, uh, as someone has described, apostolic delegates. Uh, They served a specific task, a role in salvation history. Uh, They were in that in-between moment between the end of the apostles and the establishment of the eldership. But there is a personal affection here, a genuine love and care for one who has served with, who has mentored, who has cared for, such as Titus. And this is further seen in uh, the following words, where Paul says, Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. This is a common way that Paul opened his letters to the churches, or in this case, to an individual. And you'll see slight variations as well, depending on the context. The extension of, of grace highlights the sovereignty of God, because grace is only grace if it is undeserved. It is something that has been spoken of throughout the first few verses and will be spoken of much more throughout the letter. As another commentator points out, grace is a one-word summary of God's saving act in Christ, stressing that salvation comes as a free gift to undeserving sinners. So that is grace. Peace is what occurs as a result of God's grace. When a person places their faith in Christ, they are no longer at enmity with God. Christ's sacrifice has dealt with God's wrath and now there is sweet reconciliation. Hence, Paul can speak of God as Father. And only when there is peace with God can there be peace from God in a subjective sense. Like the peace uh, of God that transcends our hearts and minds when we offer our prayers to God, which Paul speaks of in Philippians chapter 4. It's, it's appropriate just to pause at this moment to highlight the triune nature of God that Paul uh, has drawn out through all his instructions so far and what will be elaborated even further throughout the letter. Verse 1, Paul is a, a servant of God and an apostle of Christ. Verses 2 and 3, both God and Christ are referred to as saviour. And in verse 4, grace and peace come both from God and Christ. It shows that the one Paul is called to preach about is more than simply a man. Jesus is God incarnate. And so to address Titus with grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour, summarises everything that the sinner needs. And as an apostolic delegate, Titus knew this for himself. He was a believer. But it was good and necessary to be reminded of this nonetheless, which is another sign of Paul's care for a co-worker in Christ. So the grounds for apostolic instruction are clear. Paul speaks of his authority his assignment, his assurance, and his affection. 
These are important for salvation because he speaks of good news and he speaks truly. But these grounds are also important for sanctification. If Paul speaks the truth about the gospel, then he speaks the truth about godliness and he speaks the truth about God's design for the church. And it's to our benefit that we heed these words. And it is to God's glory when we do so. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for these opening words of Paul's letter to Titus. We thank you for the grace that has poured out of these few verses. We thank you for your sovereignty, which is is clear. We thank you for the importance that is brought again to our minds that while our works have nothing to do with being justified in your sight. They are a fruit of that. And we are called to display our lives in godliness and in love and obedience to Christ. Father, as we've seen these words today, we pray that you would help us to uh, not only uh, see Paul's words in a new light, but indeed scripture itself in new light to recognise that it is your word to us, that it is authoritative, that it is true and trustworthy in everything it speaks of. Father, as we continue in our study of Titus over the following weeks, may you, uh, may your spirit uh, be working in our hearts that we may receive this teaching and that uh, we would continue to submit to you and to glorify you in all we do as your people went together as your church. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.